What does it mean to be healthy? To be healthy. Throughout um, our entire generation, at least from the 1970s on, although I think really earlier than that, we have seen fad diets come and go, haven't we? There was the cigarette diet. Ever heard of that one? The grapefruit diet. The master cleanse. The cabbage soup diet. The drinking man's diet. The sleeping beauty diet, which really just amounted to taking sedatives and sleeping through meals. The Scarsdale diet, the Adkins diet, the baby food diet, and, and then there were the programs, right? Weight Watchers, Jenny Craig, Nutrisystem, Slim Fast, on and on and on. I grew up in a day where everyone was watching their cholesterol, and so we didn't put salt on our food, and we didn't eat the egg yolk. We had to swap butter for margarine and drink skim milk. Right. Whatever saturated fats are, back then they were bad for you, and so red meat was out, and we had to eat turkey burgers. Imagine a moment, imagine, if you will, for just a moment, the glories of life under the new covenant, yet without bacon. The saying was, eat right, stay fit, die anyway. What does it mean to be healthy? I know that the fad diets are still going around. I know that maybe some of you are on one, and so I'm not going to needlessly offend you, although I will enjoy some bread later, maybe a cookie with my coffee. But I need to ask that question again. What does it mean to be healthy? Five times in Paul's epistle to Titus, his letter to Titus, he uses the word that is translated into English as sound. Literally, it is defined as meaning to be well or to be in good health. So in Titus chapter 1, verse 9, we saw that the elder is to be able to give instruction in sound or healthy doctrine. Later in verse 13 of chapter 1, the Cretans are to be rebuked so that they may be sound or healthy in the faith. And it's clear from Paul's letter here that sound, healthy doctrine, sound, healthy teaching is essential for the production of sound, healthy Christian disciples. A church that is tied up with false teaching will not be a church that produces saints that are sound in the faith. And you may not be aware of it, but this is an ongoing battle that we're seeing in our society and in churches today. Even from formerly evangelical churches who are joining the mainline denominations and running after things like progressivism, as it is known today. Liberalism is what it used to be called. There is still a battle for the truth. There is still a battle for sound, healthy doctrine. So turn to Titus chapter 2 if you're not already there. We're going to be looking today just at verses 1 through 6, Titus 2, 1 to 6. But because this chapter begins with the conjunction, but, I'm going to begin reading in chapter 1, verse 9, so that we can get a sense of the, of the contrasting picture that Paul is 
painting here that he is drawing for us between the, the, the saints and the sinners that are promoting false doctrine in the church. And in one nine, as we pick this up, he's specifically talking about the elder's responsibility. So as we pick this up, Titus chapter 1, verse 9 says this, He, that is the elder, must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They're detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They're to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. We'll stop there. Let's just pray again one more time. Father, I pray that you would feed us um, from your word today. Give us what we need that we might become conformed to the image of Christ. Help us to understand these things, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. The Apostle Paul is still instructing Titus in just exactly what he means when he says at the beginning in his opening to put what remained into order. He started at the top in in ordering the church, so to speak. He started with the church leadership, with the elders, the overseers, or as he also calls them, God's stewards. And he explained that, that their life and their character and therefore their leadership of the church must be above reproach. From there, not only is the elder to be godly, he must also hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Because there are those false teachers, he says, that must be silenced because they're upsetting whole families. So this morning we're going to see the flip side of those upset families. Instead of being led astray, they're going to be sound, they're going to be um, uh, healthy. Instead of being unfit for any good work, as the chapter finishes, they will be people for his own possession who are zealous for good works, as the end of this chapter, chapter 2 says. But before we get to the saints, we need to remember that Paul is still instructing Titus specifically. He says, but as for you, So in complete contrast with the false teachers of the previous section, the previous several verses, 
Titus was to teach what accords with sound doctrine. You need to understand that everything that flows out of this uh, with regards to discipleship, uh, what the older men and the older women and the younger women and the younger men were to look like, what their character was to be like, flows out of this sound doctrine, this healthy teaching that Titus was to proclaim. False doctrine leads to defilement and unbelief. We saw that earlier. That's what he is saying in chapter 1, really verses 15 and 16 in particular. But sound doctrine leads to godly living. Now we know that solid Bible teaching does not automatically lead to solid biblical living. There have been a number of pastoral scandals over the past couple of years involving pastors and teachers who, by and large, had correct doctrine, mostly, yet their moral character did not live up to the standards required by the Bible, and they disqualified themselves from ministry. Mark Driscoll, Tullian Tavigian, James McDonald, who are all back in ministry and yet are disqualified, Josh Harris, who has since denied the faith, Darren Patrick, and most recently Ravi Zacharias, who are both dead. These are just some of the well-known examples of people who had, by and large, correct doctrine, and yet have denied their, their character. How many smaller churches have been devastated by unchecked sin? Or families. But we can still say that sound doctrine leads to godly living because sound doctrine leads to the loving discipline of erring, wandering sinners. For example, Galatians 6 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Good, solid Christian churches still have to deal with church discipline. And ironically, they're pretty much the only ones who do. This is the main idea that I want you to take with you today. Sound doctrine leads to godly living. Can I say it? I'll say it one more time. Sound doctrine leads to godly living. Now as these verses unfold here, um, we can see the specifics of, of godly living in these various church members. But we need to begin there in that verse 1. Because in one sense, this is a, a summary of what follows. Or what follows, as I said, flows from sound doctrine. But in another kind of related sense, this verse is a summary of the, the duties or the, the job of the teaching elder, the pastor. But as for you, Paul writes, and there's a definite emphasis on the you. So we could read it like this, but as for you, you teach what accords with sound doctrine. I mentioned before that five times in the book of Titus, Paul uses the word that is translated as sound. Well, it actually only appears in the New Testament 12 times, and eight of them are just in the pastoral epistles, just in his writings to Timothy and Titus. Five of them are in uh, Titus. Sound doctrine is a favorite phrase 
of the Apostle Paul, especially as he instructs pastors. And clearly, we should define this as meaning biblical truth. Yet generally, when Paul uses this expression, sound doctrine or sound faith, sound in the faith, when he uses this expression, it's set over and against something else. And that something else isn't simply the opposite of sound teaching. In other words, when Paul sets sound doctrine over and against something, when he's contrasting it with something else, that something else is not simply unsound or false teaching, not always, kind of is as he begins chapter 2, but really what he does is the, the, he sets it against the lives that false teaching produces. So, so I'll show you what I mean. Turn back to 1 Timothy chapter 1, just a couple of pages. 1 Timothy 1, 5 Verses uh, through verse 11. So 1 Timothy 1, 5 to 11. He says this. He says, The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understand this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. So did you catch that list of transgressions, that list of various sins? Paul said that those sins were contrary to sound doctrine. He does it again in chapter 6. Just listen to 1 Timothy 6, verses 3 to 5. says, If anyone teaches a different doctrine that does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he's puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Sound doctrine leads to godliness. Whatever is contrary to sound doctrine leads to all manner of sinfulness. That's what Paul's point is in these letters. This is incredibly important. It's the gospel that brings godliness. It's the sound words, as he says in that passage in chapter 6 of 1 Timothy. It's the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and his teaching that accords with godliness. This is why he said in the Great Commission, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And how do we know? How do we know, by the way, that he is with us? Because he's given us his Holy Spirit. And it is the Holy Spirit working through the teaching of God's word that brings transformation. 
And so remember this, the Holy Spirit always works in conjunction with the Word of God. Always. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine, he says. The Cretan, if we could put it this way, the the Cretan disorder of the previous verses must be put into order in the families of the church. And this will be done through the sound teaching of God's word. So take those descriptions as you look through chapter 1, the list of the false teachers and the kind of lives and sins that that produces. If you look at those descriptions, insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers, liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons, defiled, unbelieving, detestable, disobedient, unfit. If you take all of those characteristics and replace them with Christian character, teach them to observe all that I have commanded you, teach Christian character, make disciples. That's what's happening here. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine and start with the older men, Paul says. Older men, look at verse 2, Titus 2.2. 2. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. You know, it's fitting that Paul start here. He has already spoken about the elders. He's already spoken about to Titus and what his task is to be. And so it's fitting that when he talks about the church at large, the church in general, that he should start with the older men because these are the natural leaders of many of the Christian communities. Although in many churches there just simply aren't men, nowadays at least, there, there just aren't men anymore at all. You know this. I praise God that there are men in this church, men who love the Lord and love his word. Do you know why there aren't men in churches often anymore? I think there's probably a whole bunch of reasons, but one of them is certainly the the loss of robust theology, the loss of of a, a thick understanding of who God is. We have so dumbed down the preaching and teaching ministries of the church that men so often see it as a waste of time. And this has led, I am certain, to the feminization of the church and preachers that are just simply nice guys. I don't aim to be a nice guy. I mean, I hope I'm nice to you, but... It could also be, or compounding the problem, is that men are too often liars, evil beasts, and or lazy gluttons. Yet that's not what Christian men are to be. Well, right away here in verse 2, we can acknowledge the similarity between this list and the list of the elders in chapter 1. And this makes sense because this is the pool from which the elders of the church would be drawn. So we need to put this together, chapters 1 and 2. Do you understand that any list of character qualifications for elders ought to also really ought to also contain Titus 2.2. Do you understand that? The elders also ought to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and steadfastness. That should be the starting place because this is the group, these older men, older Christian men is the group from which the elders would be named. I want to point out just the obvious here. These older men are not a, they're not a special class of people. Paul just says, 
older men. And do you know what, that, what it actually means? Older men. Are you older than somebody? Or even as we go down the list, are you younger than somebody? That's all it means. Same is true for all of these categories. So if you're a Christian, you fall into one of these four categories. But in fact, we could actually argue that there might be a time in your life when you fall into a couple of the categories. You won't fall into more than two, I will guarantee that. But you might be both an older man and a younger man at one point in your life, or even depending on the crowd that you're in, right? Same thing for the women. Well, Paul's exhortation for the discipleship of the older men begins really with three characteristics. And I like the King James Version. It's kind of simple on this. It says, sober, grave, and temperate. So sober, or sober-minded, as the ESV says. When someone is sober, they are clear-headed. He's not overindulgent in any area, whether with regards to alcohol or money or power or authority. So, for example, he is clear-headed when it comes to balancing his responsibilities between his family and his job. He's clear-headed. He understands his responsibility, and he takes them seriously. John MacArthur puts it like this, his priorities are in the right order, and he is satisfied with fewer and simpler things. And then he goes on, Paul goes on, and he is grave or dignified, it says. He's worthy of respect. This doesn't mean that he can't have a sense of humor, and praise God for that. It means that he carries himself with a certain, a certain gravitas. Not because of how he's dressed or what kind of car or truck he happens to drive. Not because he has swagger, but because of his long fellowship with Jesus Christ. His long relationship with his Savior. There's a certain dignity and gravity that a man carries when he has served the Lord faithfully for many years. He is worthy of respect. The world may not look at him with respect, but in here, we do, right? A man who has served God faithfully, been faithful to his God, his family, and his church for a lifetime. You can see that this is also connected with being self-controlled. Self-control is actually repeated several times throughout this passage, these verses. And the idea is that in general, he exercises good judgment good judgment. And these character qualities are essential in a world filled with those liars, lazy beasts, or evil beasts and lazy gluttons, is it not? These character qualities are essential. Mature godliness is the opposite of the way the world looks. It's the way the world is, what the world is celebrating right now is not these things. And so the Holy Spirit uses sound doctrine to create saints who are sober-minded, dignified, and self-controlled. Or as it says in verse 13 of the first chapter, sound in the faith. And Paul elaborates on this when he says that these older men are to be sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. So in his Christ-likeness, 
The older men is to be like, for example, Psalm 1-3, which says this, He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Because this is what the gospel does. This is what Jesus does. Listen to Isaiah chapter 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and opening the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and the day of the vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. The older men of Logansville Church, may they be oaks of righteousness, planted by the Lord, that he may be glorified. That's my prayer for us guys, men, that we would be known as oaks of righteousness, planted by the Lord, that he may be glorified. May the older men of Logansville Church be sound in the faith, standing on his promises. May they be sound in love for their Savior, for their own families, and for the church family. And may they have a steadfast, resolute hope in Christ alone. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. Likewise, in the same way, Titus is to teach the older women, and this is really, this would have been earth-shattering. I hope that you get this. I don't think we do in our day and age sometimes, but it would have been earth-shattering to the Greeks who didn't allow women to assemble with the men like we are right now. They're a part of the church, Paul is explaining. Likewise, may they be oaks of righteousness planted by the Lord for his glory. Regardless, he was called to instruct them from the sound doctrine. He's called to instruct them to be reverent in their behavior. And what's really kind of interesting here is this word reverent, it's the same idea as a pastor being called reverend. It means that she is to take very seriously the fact that she belongs to God. She's to be reverent in her behavior. A reverent Christian woman will yield her heart and her mind to God's word and place her priority on the worship of Christ's church. So think of Anna in the New Testament. Think of Anna awaiting the birth of her Messiah, Luke chapter 2, and there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at the very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Anna's greatest desire was to serve her Lord and to see her Messiah, to see Christ. And not only is the older woman to be reverent in behavior, 
She's also not a gossiper, not a slanderer, Paul says. And the Greek word there for slanderer is actually, I don't do this often, but it's actually the word diabolos, devil, false accuser is what it means. Gossip and slander are the devil's work. We should keep that in mind. Gossip and slander are the devil's work. And then it says that she is also not a slave to much wine. In the ancient um, Greco-Roman world, various intoxicating substances were used to combat the effects of old age. I don't know that it's that much different today. This is a pretty straightforward command, right? These traits are pretty straightforward. In both of these areas, Paul is really just getting at self-control and sober-mindedness. And see, when these traits are lacking, the gossiper, the slanderer, it damages the credibility of the life-changing power of the gospel. And these older women and and younger women are, are clearly connected here in these verses as we continue. But don't miss the fact that they're all connected because these are families in the broader church family. Older men and older women are connected because at least two of them are probably married, right? Paul expected, and Scripture expects, that the soundness of the lives of the older men would influence the lives and behavior of the older women. And in many cases, in many cases their wives, and with the, the results being that their reputations, both of them, would promote the gospel the older men and the older women. And it's not just their reputations that we're concerned with here. Not only are these older women specifically to put off slander and addiction, they're also to put on what is good. They're to teach what is good. Right at the end of verse uh, 3 there. They're to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children. Teach what is good. John Calvin says that they are to be teachers in the art of goodness. I like that definition. They're to be teachers in the art of goodness. They're not to hoard all of the knowledge and spiritual growth that they have attained over the years, but rather they're to lovingly, reverently pass on that knowledge, pass on that discernment, pass on that maturity to the younger women. Again, read verses 4 and 5. They're to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. On this, on these verses here, Ligon Duncan writes this. He said, we ought to have an intentional, deliberate approach to female discipleship because men and women are different. And these differences need to be recognized, taken into account, and addressed in the course of Christian discipleship. And then these verses, verses 4 and 5 in particular, are are kind of like Paul's curriculum for discipleship within the church. This is a passing on of maturity. It's a ministry of of encouraging and and equipping. And I should take away one one of your excuses. This isn't simply... Mothers training daughters, which is a common excuse that I've heard over the years as to why church people are not involved with discipleship. I'm busy discipling my own kids. Men and women both have said this. It's understood um, 
that fathers and mothers would be discipling, training up their children in the way that they should go. That is understood and taught throughout the scriptures. Um, Paul addresses families in other places. Busyness in any realm of life is not a valid excuse for disobeying the Great Commission. In fact, these things ought to be the norm for church relationships. This ought to be normal for us. See, Paul does not say, if you have free time, but rather, they are to teach what is good and so train the young women. Just as the the older women are to be reverent in behavior, so they also are to teach and so train. This means that these are not mere suggestions. Now, we could spend a lot of time just on these two verses, verses 4 and 5, but let me just say this. Society hates these verses. Our world hates these verses. But these verses are vitally needed in our families. They are vitally needed in our churches and in the world today. So young women, if you put yourself in that category, I'm going to put you in that category. Young women, the world will hate you if you follow the clear teaching of Scripture on these verses. But take heart. Christ has overcome the world. At any rate, Paul's kind of curriculum outline comes to three subjects. Um, And he really begins with vital family relationships. Look at this again. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children. And then he says... Uh, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. The key words in these family relationships are love and submission. Yet Paul doesn't explain either of them here. He doesn't define love. He doesn't define submission right here. He does in other places. He expects, in reality, the older women to teach you what this means. So here I am passing the buck. Not really. In the New Testament, he gives instructions in various places in both of these areas. But I do want to point out kind of quickly is that the young wife's priority is her relationship with her husband. He mentions this a couple of times about her work with him. Children will grow up and move out, but marriage is for a lifetime. Now again, this could come in lots of different directions here as we look through these verses, but for today, I just want to stay in this text. I want to just kind of keep going here. And so the second subject of Paul's curriculum, not only is it her relationships, her vital family relationships, relationships at at home, but also he talks about her character. She is to be self-controlled, pure, and kind. Younger women are to be self-controlled in the same way that the older men are to be self-controlled. We live in a society that is decidedly not in control of themselves. And in fact, celebrates a lack of self-control, especially in young women. This is especially connected with purity, as Paul brings up. Young women today are told to be by the world, to be fierce, to be strong, 
to shout your abortions. But this is not the way of Christ. Real strength is right here. Real strength is right here. Real strength is a Christ-like strength that stands firm. Connected with these things is Paul's third kind of curriculum subject, one that I think is very misunderstood. He says, working in the home. Working in the home. This statement is not anti-career. I hope you understand that. If it were, then it would go against other passages of Scripture, namely the excellent wife of Proverbs chapter 31. Um, Just listen to verses 16 to 19. Proverbs 31, 16 to 19 says, She considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. She dresses herself with strength she makes, and makes her arms strong. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She puts her hand to the distaff and her hand holds the spindle. The excellent wife in Proverbs 31 is one that works, even sometimes outside the home. And while at the same time, she doesn't neglect her responsibilities inside the home either. Kent Hughes, in his commentary, he says this. He says, A Christian wife arranges her gifts and talents under the higher purpose of supporting the spiritual nurture of the household. Some young women, young moms, young wives, need to work outside the home. Some are, for a variety of reasons, some are wired to work outside the home. But we must remember that the calling to work inside the home is a high calling. This is really just the outworking of her love for her husband, for her children, and of course for her Savior. And just as an aside here, because we're complementarians, I'm going to read Ephesians 6.4. I'm just going to read it for just the men. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Fathers, fulfill your responsibilities. Bring your children up in the fear and instruction of the Lord. Paul has one more exhortation here, and it is to the young men. Verse 6 Likewise, urge the young men to be self controlled. This exhortation speaks volumes in its brevity. Young men, Self-control. In fact, look at me. Young men, look at me. Self-control. Guard your hearts. Watch yourselves. One day, Lord willing, you will be an old man. And I would charge you to aspire to be an old man who is sound in the faith and dignified. And trust me, that will mean more to you later than it means to you right now. And I understand that. But one day, young men, you're going to be an old man. And you're going to have regrets. And many of those regrets are going to be surrounded by a lack of self-control. Just trust me and ask your dads about that later. Remember also that Jesus said this, I am the light of the world. 
And whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Remember this also from 1 John chapter 2. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. But remember, but remember, for that to be true of you, it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. It's not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that young men may not boast. Or young women. Or old women. Or old men. So that we may not boast. So that no one may boast. So what does it mean to be healthy? It means to be sound in faith, in hope, in purity, and in love. To be a healthy Christian, whatever category you happen to fall into in this passage. It means to hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. It means that you are not walking in darkness, but have the light of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, it is our prayer that, that the young men in our church would be oaks of righteousness planted by our God for his glory. It is our prayer that the young women of this church would be oaks of righteousness planted by God for his glory. It's our prayer that the older women in our church would be oaks of righteousness planted by God for his glory. Father, it is our prayer that the old men in our church would be oaks of righteousness planted by God for his glory. Lord, we know that it is you who has done the planting. It is you who has saved us because of your grace that you have poured out on us. And so, Father, we rejoice. We rejoice that you have saved us to be a people for your own possession who are zealous for good works. And as we come to the table this morning, Lord, it is our prayer. As we proclaim the death of Jesus, we don't, we don't presume to come to your table trusting in our own righteousness, but because we have been planted by Christ, because of your great mercies. And so, Father, we come to you because you are a merciful and gracious God. And so we come and we break the bread and we drink of the cup to proclaim the death of Jesus Christ until he returns. And we pray with John, amen, come quickly, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.